Can you give it up for our worship team today? good to be with you. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. And if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kyle, and I have the honor and the privilege of serving as the associate pastor here at Crossroads Christian Church. And from time to time, when our lead pastor, Pastor Will, is away, I also have the honor and privilege of being able to open up the Word of God with you guys today. Uh, Today's one of those days I'm excited about it, so let's jump right in. Um, As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? A famous author once said, referring to this question, who do you think you are? That's the big one, isn't it? A flourishing life depends on how you answer that. And if you're a Christian, I want you this morning to consider that question. Consider the implications of the answer to that question on your life. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're unsure about Christianity or church, then just think about how you would answer that question. Who do you think you are? By the way, if you've lived in New York for more than, I don't know, 20 minutes, um, you've probably been asked the same thing, but maybe in a not-so-pleasant tone. Um, Hey, who do you think you are? For For the Christian, Colossians 3 tells us who we are and how that should impact our lives. And if you're not a Christian, then I hope you'll take the next few moments to lean in together with us this morning and to learn more, a little bit more, about what it looks like to be raised with Christ and to be given a new identity, the identity of Christian. And the question that I hope we can answer together today is, how can we be who Christ has freed us to be? Let's take a look at Colossians 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17. I know it's a big chunk. We'll all get there together. Um, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And beginning in verse 1, we're going to work to answer that question. So read along with me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Point number one, if you're following along. Know and live the truth that you have been raised with Christ. So set your mind on things above. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
This is a very, very important truth for the believer to constantly be reminded of as we go throughout our daily lives. If we've trusted in Christ, then we have been raised with Christ. And in fact, when we celebrate a baptism, we actually symbolically lower a person into the water, and then we, we do what? We, we, we raise them up, right? Because we want to show how they are now raised with Christ into new life. And so what does it mean to be raised with Christ? It means this. It means you don't have to strive or earn your good standing with God. You already have it. It means the foundation of your life is your relationship with Jesus. And I can tell you with confidence based on the Bible, if you've placed your faith and trust in him, you're forever united with him. And everything in your life flows outward from this. And so as someone who's been raised with Christ, we are then commanded to seek the things that are above where Christ is. And to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so what this means is that our lives should be oriented to Christ. And it starts with an inner recognition that even the normal, everyday, things we might say are mundane or routine, should all be viewed within the scope of eternity. In other words, this world, which does matter, is not all that matters. There is actually an eternal state coming that really matters. And our lives here should reflect that eternal viewpoint. Again, our world does matter, but it's not all that matters. One Bible scholar that I was reading this week, he said, he framed this in terms of allegiance. Um, He said, one's allegiance to him, talking about Jesus, takes precedence over all earthly allegiances. So when you're evaluating your life, your allegiance to Christ, since you've been raised with him, ought to profoundly affect how your inner and outer life looks. Here's some examples. As much as, as you may have allegiance to your boss at work, I mean, mean, the Bible tells us you should never do something immoral, unethical, illegal, or that goes against the ways of Jesus because your allegiance to Christ is greater. As much as you're committed to your child's development in sports or in music, your allegiance to Christ ought to surpass this. So you have to make the spiritual development, which is is a way of saying a Christian word we call discipleship, um, you should make that a priority with your children. And as much as you desire the person who you know, you know, you know, leads you away from the Lord... Your desire for Christ ought to be greater, causing you to evaluate your relationship with that person in light of Jesus. Point number two. There's a lot of points, so it seems like we're going quickly. It's cool. Point number two. Know the truth. Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Paul repeats and expounds on this point when he says that we've died and our lives are hidden with Christ and God. Meaning that when we trusted in Jesus, we've been joined to him in his death and in his resurrection. Our life now belongs to him, the Bible says, not to ourselves anymore. And even more so, even more strongly, Paul says, Christ is our life. And I think what Paul's trying to do here, he's actually trying to encourage us. So if that seems like, oh man, that's like weighty, that's heavy, like Christ is my life. I think he's trying to encourage us. In today's world, Christians are often misunderstood for their beliefs, amen? Just as Christ was during his time here on earth. And those who don't follow Jesus oftentimes have a hard time understanding why Christians act, think, and live in a certain way. They, they just have a hard time with it. It doesn't mean they're always against it. They just, they just don't always understand. And what Paul's doing here is he's reminding us that one day Jesus is going to return in glory. And when he does return in glory, we get to share in the glory. So I think he's trying to encourage us. Because on that day, both Christians and non-Christians will understand who Jesus is. And Christians will get some vindication. We will be vindicated on that day. And and so Paul's saying the promise of future glory should motivate us to live for Jesus now. Because he says one day, Christ is going to return in glory, and and we're going to get to share in that glory. So live for Jesus now. 
because that day's coming. And finally, just as Christ died, we've also died to the things of the world, Paul says. And this actually leads Paul into his next section where he begins to mention, he begins to kind of list off all of the things that should not characterize a believer's life. Um, Point number three, here is your put to death to-do list. Now, some of you just got really excited because you heard the words to-do list. However, as we walk through verses 5 through 11, which kind of encompasses this section, don't forget, do not forget, this is huge. You cannot forget that the motivation behind this list is that we are to put to death or put off all the following things that he's about to list as a result of our union with Christ, as a result of it. There is no motivation to do this to earn a union with Jesus. I just want to make that clear. This list that he gives us is not something we do to earn a union with Jesus. It's something we do as a result of having a union with Christ. And so the list is not a how to become a Christian checklist. Many people might think that. Instead, you should use this list as a way to evaluate your union with Christ that already exists. These are the inner changes that begin to take root as a result of one's union with Christ that is already there. And so in other words, not doing or not being these things won't make you a Christian. But these are things Christians should not do or be. Say that again. Not doing or being these things won't make you a Christian. But these are things Christians should not do or be. Verses 5 to 6, he starts. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so Paul says Christians are to totally remove these things from our lives because when we died with Christ, we also died to these things. And if you struggle with any of these things, the good news for you is that God in Christ has already defeated these sins in your place. So if this seems discouraging, if you're like, oh man, he listed out sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, that seems like a wide range of things. Um, be encouraged. Like, the good news for you is that Christ already defeated these sins in your place. And so you and I then are simply called to live lives as who we are, to, to, to rise up with Christ and be who we are. We're called to live as who we are, not as who we were before we met Jesus, before we knew Jesus. Because we died with Christ, the old self, the, the self of us that came before we knew Jesus is dead. And so we don't have to w- live that way any longer. The Holy Spirit actually gives us the power to put those old things to death as well. And Paul even says this explicitly in the next verse. In verse 7, he says, In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Before we knew Christ, these are things we walked in. And that made sense, right? I mean, why would someone who does not recognize the lordship of Jesus give a rip about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, or even anger, wrath, malice, slander, or obscene talk? But Paul reminds Christians, he says, he says, you're a Christian. He says, remember who you are. Remember, Christ is your life. So therefore, you must put to death or put away these things. Because these things are not representative. They do not represent who you are. Paul says, you're, you're a Christian. The word, the word for Christian means little Christ. Like, 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 that's who you are. So put it away. Like, it doesn't represent you. One commentator said, put off or put away can be likened to throwing off a dirty shirt. And, and, and he says, like, we should be able to, to just get rid of these sinful things off of us in the same way. It's like throwing off a dirty shirt. Here's an example. It would be like if you were a member 
here in New York, you lived in New York, you're a member of the Rockefeller family, the Carnegie family, or the Astor family. Anyone? Anyone? No hands. Um, Rockefeller family, Carnegie family, or Astor family. And you're here in New York, and you're invited to the Met Gala. The Met Gala. And w- w- which is like the epitome of fashion event um, for people, for people uh, of wealth or of prominence in our world. And you're invited to that. You're a member of the Rockefeller, the Carnegie, the Astor family. And you show up wearing a dirty, ripped T-shirt. That ripped, dirty T-shirt would not be representative of who you are. It wouldn't be. You're a Rockefeller. You're a Carnegie. You're an Astor. Like, put the thing off. It doesn't, like, like, take that thing off because it does not match. It does not represent with who you actually are. In verse 9, Paul says, And don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then he says, in verse 11, he says, Here there's not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so church, we should be a place, this, this should be a place, this should be a gathering of truthfulness. And lying should not characterize any of the interactions that we have with one another. Lying and a lack of truth-telling characterizes the old self, right? That's the old way of life, and that is now dead. But the new self that's mentioned in verse 10 describes the new way of life of a Christian. And the new way of life must be constantly renewed. And this doesn't just happen um, because we, we just mentally in our heads say, okay, we want this to happen. It happens as a believer grows in his or her relationship with Jesus. So like, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, there's this constant renewal. And so the goal of a new way of life is to make a Christian more like Christ day by day. Now, of course we stumble. Of course we fall. And maybe we even take a step back sometimes. But the trajectory, the long-term trajectory of our lives is to be pointed towards growing in Christ-likeness as we go deeper and deeper into our relationship with Jesus. And so verse 10, when it says being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator, being renewed, that's a constant, constant renewing. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to change us, church, from the inside out, we begin to lose interest in many of the old practices and many of the old things in that list that Paul gives us. Those things begin to kind of fade away because we begin to see more and more each day the beauty of Jesus. And a sign of growth in this area is when we begin to see sin as, as something to be put to death. Um, a lot of times, I know that's harsh language for our culture to say, like, sin is something we should put to death. Like, I get that. But when we, when we begin to see something or sin as something that should be put to death, that's different than seeing it as something to be managed or something to be kind of kept hidden or kept on the side. Um, put to death means put to death. It means put off. It, 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 it's like the dirty shirt. Remember, we, we should get it off. And the new self in the church also erases barriers that humans artificially place against each other. Think about this. The erasing of barriers should actually be most easily seen in the church. Crossroads, I love this church. There's a lot of things I love about this church. And this is the thing I love the most about our church. We have people from many different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities, and different cultural experiences. That's our church. Look around. But we've all covenanted together and united around the name of Jesus. And that's one of the things I love most about our church is that our backgrounds, our experiences are very different. But we've united in Jesus' name. And if we could take the liberty to customize Colossians 3.11 for crossroads, maybe we even call it Crossroads 3.11, it might read something like this. Here there's not native New Yorkers or transplants, 
people with Christian backgrounds and those without, rich or poor, light-skinned or dark-skinned or somewhere in between, Cantonese-speaking people or Spanish-speaking people, executives at work or entry-level employees, but Christ is all and in all. And you see, church, we are to rid ourselves of those artificial barriers that keep us from experiencing unity in Christ. Now, is this easy? No, it's not. It's not easy. But does it resemble what heaven's going to look like when people gather around from every tribe, every language, every nation, when they're all gathered around the throne and there's a diversity of of song, of worship to Jesus? It's exactly what heaven's going to look like. So it's worth it for that. Point number four. The next thing that we do to, to begin to rise up with Christ and be who we are is we put on for Christ. Put on for Christ. So what does it mean to put on in Jesus' name? Well, for that, let's turn back to the year 2008. And there was a rapper named Young Jeezy who released a song titled Put On. Anyone? Put On? If rap music's your thing, you certainly remember the short hook of the song. Um, I put on for my city, on, on for my city. Basically, what Young Jeezy's saying is that, and that's all, and that's all the rap you're going to get from me. Sorry. Um, our, other, our other pastor's known to sing, but, you know, not me. Um, So he says, I put on for my city, on, on for my city. And basically what young Jeezy's saying is that he's going to represent his city well. He's going to represent it well. And he wanted everybody to know that he was about his city and he was committed to living in it, to it, and for it. And now after learning that definition from the great theologian young Jeezy, what does it mean for us to put on for Christ? Well, it would mean to represent Christ well in our world. And this, this church is actually one of the evangelistic purposes of the church. I mean, this is one of the reasons there is a church. It's to be a witness um, to, to the outside world. We're called to be so different, so radically different in the way that we love people, the way that we treat one another, and that it causes the world to wonder why we're so different. I mean, that's one of the purposes of the church. That's one of the things we're called to do. And the next few verses of here in Colossians 3 actually describe what that looks like. And so we're going to run through those quickly. Like, hey, here's, here's kind of what it looks like to put on for Jesus. Verse 12 talks about the character traits of a Christian. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so Paul says the first way we put on for Christ is to embody the character traits of Jesus. What are those character traits? Well, it's a compassionate heart. It's kindness. It's humility. It's meekness. And it's patience. Now, church, I feel, the, I feel like the most unqualified person in the world to be telling you that, that these are the things um, that, that we should be putting on for Jesus. That these are the character traits of Jesus that we should be following. But it's what, it's what the scripture says. Um, because I find myself oftentimes doing the opposite of these things. And everything on that list, Jesus Christ perfectly embodied during his life and his ministry. And Paul says, just as we threw off that old dirty shirt of our old sinful selves... We are to put on or clothe ourselves with the Christ-like characteristics mentioned here. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, what if I put these on once, and then after a hard day at work, I yell at my kids, or I push past an older person to get on the train before the doors close? What then? What do I do then? Does this actually mean that I actually do not possess any of these qualities at all? In church, I want to give you a dose of grace here. Put on could actually be translated, clothe yourselves. And I learned in my study for the sermon that this is a verb in the present imperative. And everyone fell, fell asleep. Uh, this is a verb in the present imperative, which should actually be read, 
put them on and keep putting them on. So if you were to do a real translation, it would say, put them on and keep putting them on. And so there's a constant theme of allowing the gospel to renew our hearts in a way in order to effectively live, live this out, right? So it, it says, clothe yourselves with these and keep doing it. Put on these and keep putting them on. And so this implies that when we fail, we must return to Christ, who remember, he's our life, right? He's our life. We return to him and we reclothe ourselves with these qualities. Verse 14 talks about putting on love. It says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And there was a Bible scholar named Kent Hughes, and he made the point that if the previously mentioned character traits, so if compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, if those are the clothes of the Christian life, then love is the belt that keeps them in place. And so I want to read to you, because he said it better than I ever could, I want to read to you what he wrote in his commentary on Colossians 3. He said this, he said, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The apostle, he's talking about Paul, envisions a man dressing his body with the flowing garments of the day, and then it occurs to the man that as beautiful and as fine as his garments are, they can never be worn with comfort or grace until they're held in place by a belt. So he adds the belt called love. It is possible to have some of the five recommended garments and not have love, but it is impossible to have love and not have all five garments. And so the imperative thrust is continuous. Keep putting on love over and over and over again. And finally, he says, let peace rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And so church, are we at peace with our fellow Christians? Is the church a place of peace or a place of tension? Do we seek peace with one another or do we grumble and cause division? The amount of peace in our hearts as we interact with our fellow Christians could be one indicator of our closeness with Jesus. It doesn't mean that we never have conflict or that we never disagree. That would be impossible. We're human. But when we do, do we allow the peace of Christ to mediate between us? And together we are called to be one body in unity under Jesus. And the peace of Christ is what makes this possible. And finally, right, kind of wrapping up this section of putting on for Jesus, verse 16, um, Paul makes the point, he says, let the word dwell. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so the word of God, church, is one of the primary ways that we know God. It's one of the primary ways it's through his word. His word teaches us who he is. His word teaches us what he's done for us. And it's this message that's to be the primary motivating factor in our lives and in the church in our relationship with others. And so we're also commanded here to teach and admonish one another in wisdom. What that means is that we should let God's word guide us into truth together as a church. Um, when it comes to the music part, maybe you're not a music person and you've wondered, why do churches sing songs every week? Like I've, every church I've ever gone to, they sing songs. Like, like why, why is that? Um, here's your answer. We're commanded here by scripture to sing our faith. And David Mercado went, Amen. <laughs> so, so, so we're commanded here by scripture to sing our faith. And in doing so, we actually join a long line of Christians dating back to the Colossian church who have sang as an expression of worship. And frankly, if we're honest, most of you will remember the lyrics to the worship songs in far greater detail than you're going to remember these sermon points. 
So as you sing, one thing you're doing, and this is why we're so careful about the songs that, that we choose to sing, is we're letting the word dwell in us as we sing. And so those are some of the ways as a church that, that, that we do that. Point number five, here, here Paul also commands us, he says in verse 13, um, he says it a little, more, a little more sweetly, but this is actually semi-direct from the Greek, um, put up with one another, put up with one another, verse 13. In families, there are complaints and sometimes grievances. And sometimes those, those happen against one another, they occur, right? The same is true in church families. Um, the second point of our mission statement here at Crossroads is we wanna grow together as a family. However, when these things happen, Paul gives us a simple roadmap to follow when thinking through how to handle complaints against one another. In verse 13, he says, bearing with one another, that can actually be translated putting up with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And he says, we are to bear with one another, translation, put up with one another, using the compassionate hearts, the kindness, the meekness, the humility, and the patience that are mentioned in verse 12. He says, those are the things you use to bear with one another and to forgive. And by the way, forgiveness is the primary solution given by scripture to handle any of these conflicts or disagreements within the church. He says, um, Paul makes the point, if we did not belong to Christ, we obviously wouldn't have a reason to forgive, right? Unless we just like happen to be feeling nice that day, we might forgive somebody. But, But what Paul's saying here is because the Lord's forgiven us, then now your heart should desire to forgive others. And for you, that should be an act of worship. So your forgiveness of others is actually a way you can worship the Lord. And so you can make the point, the reason for forgiveness is forgiveness. Because we've been forgiven, we can forgive. It would be almost impossible for us to do that otherwise. And finally here in, in Colossians 3, we get to verse 17, which you could say is almost a, almost a summary verse. Um, point number six, if you're writing down, do it all for Jesus. Do it all for Jesus. As Paul nears the end of this section of his letter to the Colossians, he wraps up his argument with a single sentence. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, this may be one of the most comprehensive exhortations in the entire library of scripture. I, I, I mean, this may cover all the bases unlike any other scripture can. Here we are told that all of life should be conducted in the name of the Lord. And this means, by the way, that there's no split between sacred things and secular things. Um, we like to draw that line a lot. We like to think like these are the holy sacred things. Maybe what happens on Sunday or when I read my Bible in the morning or, you know, when I go to my growth group or when I serve in the church. Like these are the these are the sacred things. And then everything else is like the secular stuff. But what the Bible is saying here is that all is sacred in God's eyes, all of it. And so everything that we do is to be done as a representative of the Lord Jesus. So our family dinners. Our client meetings, our housework, our banking, our parenting, our conference calls, our doctor's appointments, our grocery shopping. That's a fun one, right? Our dating life, our marriages, our apartment hunting, and even our vacations are all to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. So just to clarify, like this, this does not mean that we have to over-spiritualize every conversation in every setting. Just so I'm clear. Yes, guys, sometimes you can hang out with other dudes and you can only talk 
about how the Brooklyn Nets are going to be the NBA's next super team. Yeah. And, and this also doesn't mean that a pop-up Bible study or prayer group has to happen in the midst of all of your daily activities. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that Christ's lordship is over everything. Like he's Lord of all, right? And his authority actually ought to govern every aspect of our lives. And we should be considering Christ in every daily decision that we make. Decisions on how we spend our money, how we manage our calendar, how we invest in our relationships with each other, how we raise our kids, and on and on and on. We should be considering Christ in those. Like Christ should be, Christ should be a central decision-making factor in those things. And so do it all for Jesus. Do it all for Jesus because everything centers church on him. Romans 11.36 tells us this. It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And if you're a Christian here today, hopefully you've just been given a reminder of the truth of your life. You've been raised with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Now rise up and be who you are. It's who you are. If you're not a Christian, then I hope today you've seen the beauty of a life lived as a response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the good news for you, if you're not a believer or you're unsure about the whole church thing, you can experience this life by confessing your sin, turning away from it, and turning to Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Jesus Christ actually stands ready to forgive you of your sins. He stands ready to bury that old self, and he stands ready to raise you up with him to a new life. And you can come to him today to be freed to live that new life today. And so church, uh, as we do every Sunday, we're actually going to have a time of response now where you can do several things. So this is a time during the service, we, we break it out separately. We say, here's a time you can come and, and you can do several things if you choose. You can stay in your seat and you can pray to God. You can talk with him. You can, you know, work things out one-on-one with him. If you'd like someone to pray with you, I'll be at the front along with some of our other deacons. Love to pray with you. You can worship through singing. You can sing along um, as we learned here in Colossians. Uh, You can sing your faith as our worship team leads us. And finally, you can come forward to receive communion. And communion is represented here on each table with the juice and the bread. And when you come forward to receive communion, communion, what it is, it's a chance for us to remember the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. And it represents, the the bread and the juice represent his broken body and his shed blood for us. And if you're here and you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing, I'd invite you to simply observe when, when it comes to communion. Just observe others. Observe those who have made the decision to follow Jesus and observe them worshiping through the receiving of communion as they remember what Christ has done for them. And instead of you receiving the bread and the cup, I would consider you, or I would ask you to consider receiving Christ during this time. Because you see, these elements of communion, they just don't have the same meaning without a relationship with Jesus. And so as you observe others receiving the bread and the cup, you consider receiving Jesus as Lord. So church, you can stay in your seat and pray. There will be people up here. If they'd love to pray with you. You can worship through singing. You can come and receive communion. So church, when you're ready, you come.